Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Believe in Betting Chicago. My name is Joey Christopoulos. This episode today is brought to you by betonline.ag. We continue our Chicago sports movie podcast series with the 1995 film, Sudden Death. When ex-fireman Darren McCord, Jean-Claude Van Damme, has a new job working security at the Pittsburgh Civic Arena, he's hoping to impress his kids. So he scores tickets to the Stanley Cup Finals between the Chicago Blackhawks and the Pittsburgh Penguins. Ex-CIA agent Joshua Foss, Powers Booth, is holding the vice president hostage in a press box and plans to blow up the building if he doesn't pay his ransom. But when Darren learns of the scheme, he jumps into action to save the day. So we've got Van Dam, we've got Powers Booth, we've got Blackhawks, we've got Penguins. So I'm keeping this close to my heart today and we are bringing in the family for this one today. Let's start first with if it was game seven, he wouldn't leave his seat no matter what happened, no matter what Jean-Claude Van Damme said to him, no matter if the building was on fire, it's Chris Carosi. How are you, man? Great, Joey. Thanks for having me on. This is awesome. Here we are. Coming up Excited. next, when, when he goes down to Venice Beach, he goes under the name Powers Booth, Dan Martin. How are you, Dan? I'm good, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Welcome to the podcast. And coming up next, near and dear to my heart, if I say something nasty about the pens, this podcast is going to turn into sudden death too. It's my wife, Mara Karosi Christopoulos. Hi, honey. Hi. I can't believe I was third introduced. And finally, we actually have a witness to this true life event of a movie. He was at the game. He might have dismantled a few bombs. We're about to find out right here on the pod. Ladies and gentlemen, Jason Chiodo. Hey there, Joey. How are you, man? Welcome to the podcast. Awesome. Thanks for having me. All right, you guys. Well, here we go. The movie Sudden Death. Now, Jay, you were there in person. Chris, you saw this movie recently, uh, I believe in the last 48 hours. And Mara, you saw this within the last week. I'm going to go to Dan Martin here first. This movie for you, I think you've seen it before. It's in a canon that you like, that you enjoy. Uh, on the rewatch, how was it? Uh, you know, I've, I probably saw this movie within the first year or two that it came out. And, uh, you know, for me, it stands very well in the Die Hard on a Blank canon. Uh, you know, not, I'd say above 50%. Uh, but the thing that surprised me most on rewatching was I was convinced that the opening had him as a firefighter in Montreal because he's got that uh, great Canadian backstory. Um, and also, I was really surprised, I'd forgotten that they go there and they kill a kid in the first two minutes, which I think really sets the stakes for his daughter being part of the hostage crew in the vice president's box. Uh, you know, I, at that, when I noticed that, I thought, oh, they've really stepped this up from your average uh, diehard copy. So let's start at the beginning of the film here with a section that I like to call Haunted Beginnings. And we're going to go to Chris here first. You just saw this movie very recently. And this is jarring. There's no exposition. There's no preceding, no proceeding. It's just a moment of Van Damme trapped under a cloud of dirt with a little girl crying out for help. I mean, jarring. Um, are you doing okay? What were your thoughts in the opening scene? Um, I'm doing okay. I, I do worry about uh, the other people that saw the dead child. It seems as though Van Damme's, the way that he harbors it is he's, he can like become an absolute sicko and like burn people alive and like create, you know, like air guns that shoot like needles and stuff. So I think that's what they're trying to, it's kind of like they cut a half hour out of how he developed his, uh, his murderous qualities that he, he's a fireman. And I, and I kept thinking to myself, like, he's a fireman, he's a fireman. So like, how does this work? Like John McClane was a cop. So he's sort of scrappy. It, it makes sense. And other movies have done a lot better. But this movie, he just sees like a girl dies in his arms and he doesn't seem very upset. And we just cut to the game and we just have to believe that he's been through some shit. <laughs> a lot of questions, a lot of trauma. Jay, I want to throw it to you real quick because just general thoughts on firefighter protocol here. And we all know Van Damme deep down in our hearts, right? They were... They were canvassing a building. They were going from station to station. And he, what, he just heard the cry of someone and then just booked it down the hallway? I mean, of course. I mean, being, uh, being a, a Pittsburgh firefighter, I mean, of course this guy's going to put, uh, put his life on the line at a moment's notice. He fails miserably, by the way. 
But uh, yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, uh, to to echo what uh, Dan was saying, it really sets the stakes very quickly in the film. It ends up being pretty brutal. This is a pretty mean-spirited film. I mean, we are killing innocent lives left and right here. And uh, I got to tell you, during the time that this film was being shot in town, it was a it was a big uh, a big big point of uh, of pride amongst uh, locals. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody was super excited. And I remember now watching it again last night. I haven't seen it in a while, but I remember having this feeling whenever I first sat down and watched it that you know it was almost like they were sort of. Uh, taking the piss out of the city. It was like they were disrespecting it somehow just because it was so mean-spirited. I mean, there's a, this, this has got a black heart, this film. We're going to get into it. We're going to get into a lot of that. And we're also going to check in with you period by period throughout the film just to see where your mindset was at that particular time. Uh, hop in, Dan, real quick. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought up the time period, Jason, because you also got to remember this was uh, the era of grunge, so it was a dark time for music and a dark time for our nation as a whole. Uh, so it, it stands to reason that it would start with such a downer. And you think about something like Cliffhanger where Sylvester Stallone drops uh, his buddy's girlfriend off a, off a cliff at the beginning. You know, this was a very popular way to start a movie. Uh, even Backdraft, Joey, one of your favorites, and also Chicago legend movie, uh, starts with uh, the main character's dad getting blown up. So you know, it was very in at the time. And, uh, you know, we still see it today. Yeah, riding the trend. Happen, Mar. For clarity, this is just a, this is an open thought. He's a firefighter in Pittsburgh. The girl dies in his arms. Flash forward to him picking up his kids, and he is clearly a divorcee. Are we to assume that he is divorced because of the child dying? And that they're in root? Are we supposed to fill in all of that? His entire life. It's a it's a closed it's a closed hero. He's closed <laughs> off to the world. This hero. I mean, he might as well be in the woods in his mind, even though in his heart and his body he's still going to work. Hop in, Chris. Yeah, because you know, because they don't do any job making him making him into a character, and they do and they do they don't do anything with the backstory. You're forced to connect these dots. So it's like if he knows how to kill people so well without any remorse. Like, what shady shit was he up to when he got fired? Like, that's why he was fired. That's, that's, that's like my, like, Ed, like, canon right there. Like, he Hop was, like, oh. he, he was going off the rails and uh, killed some folks. <laughs> Hop in, Dan. You know, what you missed, Mar, is they didn't have him grow a beard between the first scene and the next scene. So you didn't know that there was some character development that was supposed to happen there. Well, true, but I just... It just seems such a wild thought that like this one thing happened to him and it completely demolished his entire life. Like it ruined his marriage. His kids hate him. Like he's just a security guy, fire marshal at the Civic Arena now. Like he, how do you fall from so high so quickly? I like, mean, and that's, that's the brilliance of this movie, right? Is it really is, I mean, the usage rate on Van Damme lines wise, uh, we can talk more about, but let's just get it out there on the top. He says maybe about 43 words in the whole movie. Um, 17 of them, I think, come consecutively at one point. I mean, his usage rate uh, per dialogue, per scene, is very low. So it's making the audience work right now is what's really happening. And taking a huge page out of the cliffhanger book about a broken man who's now thrust back in and some sort of sense of redemption, protect the kids, protect the one kid. There's, uh, there's a lot to unpack going on right now. So what we're going to do is it's 175 hours before tip-off a timestamp that they use very, very freely. Wait, 173 hours before tip-off. Let's get to the pregame here, and I want to bring in Mara a little bit because this is when we start kind of getting into some of the Pittsburgh sightings that we start to see just a little bit here. I mean, off the bat, I think as they're walking up to the Civic Arena, there is a WDVE van in the first, you know, five minutes of, which for everybody who is not from Pittsburgh, it is a beloved uh, classic rock radio station. Um, it's also the radio station of the Pittsburgh Penguins. So um, that's actually interesting. A little tip of the hat there. And Hop in, Chris. Hop in, Chris. Um, the Steelers. Oh, I'm Not sorry. The Penguins. the Penguins are on WXDX. The X. My apologies. But 
the, nonetheless, the call out is there and it is true and it's in your face right away. So that was kind of like, okay. Um, <laughs> and then I believe the moment they approached the very first local Pittsburgh person that you're to see as uh, he's bringing his children to, to the game is the, the ticket taker, the guy who's checking IDs, not even a whiff of a Pittsburgh accent there, not even of not even in the ballpark of Pittsburgh, which by the way, I want to say is probably one of the hardest accents to put on cinema. I don't know that maybe Christian Bale did it right. So it's, it was like they put a Chicago accented guy working as a local Pittsburgh ticket taker, which I thought was odd. Who's not very good at his job. The security is lax. And this is something that I want to start with Jay. And then we're going to hit Dan. The the concept of this uh, little heist that they're trying to pull off and is in heist, uh, the vice president, I mean, it's got some really interesting uh, methods here. Um, who knew ID badges get you a long way? And also the popcorn in the, the guns in the popcorn. Uh, very buttery, very, very, very buttery guns. But Jay, uh, so the pregame, the, the plan is set. Pieces are moving. You're walking into the stadium. How do you feel about this whole plan that they have put in place? Boy, well, their guns are uh, certainly going to be lubed up. That's for sure. At least we know that uh, they're going to be working properly. So that's cool. But uh, yeah, basically all you need is a printer, uh, lamination machine, and you're, you're basically in. Um, are you XCIA? You know, I'm sorry. Wait, hey, hold on a second. Hey, listen, I can neither confirm nor deny. And I got to tell you, just to circle back to, uh, to Mr. McCord's little snot-nosed brat of a child, I got to tell you, he thinks very poorly of his of his dad, but as far as I can tell, his dad's got kind of the coolest job in the entire city during this uh, during this weekend, right? He's got free tickets. He's got access to the kitchen, the the bar. I mean, he can get anywhere he wants in that place. You know, game seven, easy at game seven. I mean, come on, that kid also, sucks. Also, a very interesting concept. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Dan, about the idea that his kids are fully aware of what a failure his father is like they have the emotional weight of what he's going through. Uh, and they completely have the pulse of the trauma and they really take it out on him. Um, and the fact that he isn't a fireman anymore is just a serious problem in the family, Dan. Yeah. And not to go back to belabor the opening again, but I mean, I think it really shows once his daughter is part of the hostage uh, group when she just immediately sells him out as her father. Like, I know she's only five or six years old, but she clearly doesn't have the sense of Holly Gennaro to hide her connection to the lone hero that's going around the building taking out bad guys. I mean, she's basically the Ellis of this movie, doing coke and throwing around fancy gold watches. Yeah, absolutely. And so we start to, like, get a little bit of the ensemble of what it's going to take to pull this whole little mess off here. And it starts right with Dollar Store Benicio, because if you're going to take over the vice president, the first thing you do is he go for the head chef's wife? I mean, let's be honest here. The head chef's wife, she has all the access. She has all the recipes. It's all figured out. So Dollar Store Benicio, Dan, can you give us a, I'm sorry, you had the knowledge on this. Give us a quick little background of his character and the actor that plays him very quickly. Oh, yeah. I mean, his name is Scratch, obviously. Uh, the actor is Jack Erdy, who's actually been in a lot of stuff. Most recently, uh, was it WGN's Outsiders uh, Motorcycle Gang Show? Um, that's basically the, uh, the dollar store version of Sons of Anarchy. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he chews the scenery until the scenery chews him with some really dollar store CGI stunt work. This is his chance. Put some fake gum in your mouth and start smacking away. So they're getting in, they're infiltrating this beautiful game seven situation. And we are going to play a realistic, unrealistic game later, but let me be the first to say one of the most unrealistic parts of the movie is the fact that the Blackhawks actually took the Penguins in the 90s to Game 7. I'm sorry. I love the Blackhawks. That is completely ridiculous. Doesn't make any sort of sense. The Penguins wiped the floor with us all throughout the 90s, and the fact that we somehow scrapped our way to a Game 7 with Brian Tolliver behind goal, which we'll get to in a little bit, I found a bit ridiculous. And in this moment is when we introduce something which is a Pittsburgh favorite. Their commentator, their play-by-play -play announcer, Mike Lang, and Chris, once you saw him, this was like this was like a, a shot straight from home, right? Oh yeah, uh, Mike Lang is still very much a part of the of uh, of uh, the Penguins' um, radio broadcast, and he's been doing it for a lot of years. And he's in the Hall of Fame, but he's still active. That's how amazing he is. 
Um, he used to be on TV as well, but now he just does radio. Um, he's extremely old, but he but he's, his voice is still the same. He he uses uh, he uses uh, headphones from like the old times so that his voice sounds grainy on purpose. He's awesome, and in the movie is he's incredible in this movie because it sounds like a real game and i don't understand how they nailed the hell out of that part so much i guess when we talk about the hockey i can get into that later like the hockey looks great and the announcing is so good and it's so real because it's the real penguins uh play-by-play guy and the real penguins color guy at the time paul um Seigewald, who was the real color man at the time too and he's still involved with the Penguins organization now so yeah, it's it was great to see him in this movie. He's such a big part of the movie too. Fifty-seven minutes till puck drop. Mara, I want to ask you. You found out some very interesting trivia about what Mike Lang had to do for this movie because little backstory is some of the Penguins players were playing on the ice, but not necessarily the Blackhawks players, which made it a little tough for Mike Lang. Yeah, I was reading in the in an article that <clears throat> it was extremely hard for him because not only did he call. The Pens games, but from time to time, he would call like minor league games or games of the city. So he would, I start to identify with the players' playing styles, et cetera. So while he had to start calling them, not only by the Penguins' different jersey names, because they were the, uh, Chris, help me out with that. I think they were like the farm team back home that actually played the Pens because there was a lockout at the time. But he said it was difficult for him because he knew the players and he knew their playing style, but they were wearing different jerseys. So he said it was a it was tough for him because he's that good of a guy at his job. So. Calling the wrong names, but still fit in a nice bingo on that first Pens goal there in the first period. Um, moving on, we have got to talk about Powers Booth. Long overdue. We've made it 10, 15 minutes. We haven't even mentioned yet a great villain turn cut from the cloth of Alan Rickman, John Lithgow, so many different great 90s villains. Dan, quick reaction to Powers Booth. Just give us a bit of an appetite of what we're about to talk about. I mean, what can you say about Powers Allen Booth? Yes, his real name sounds like a fake name, but his real name, birth name, born June 1st, 1948 in Snyder, Texas. Now, he went to Texas State. You know, I'm going to skip ahead through some of this. He, he was, this is not the only time he's played uh, vice president. He was the vice president, Noah Daniels, on 24, and later ascended to the presidency. Uh, also showed up as a voice in the Area 51 video game, classic on-rails shooter. And he played a character named Tolliver in Deadwood. But what I want to come to is that this is really Powers Booth's movie. He carries this thing in a giant bag full of popcorn. He gets all the one-liners. And uh, what you may not know is he also narrates the book on tape of the novelization of this movie. And I can't believe that they made a book out of this thing. I never knew that. It's the best thing I've learned all week. That's yes. absolutely incredible. I mean, I would have Powers Booth narrate pretty much anything, but at the same time, that's absolutely amazing. Jay, I wanted to ask you, Powers Booth, he's in the house. I mean, fantastic actor, scene chewing, owning the movie. Obviously, he has to carry it because Van Damme has 43 words in the entire movie. But uh, your thoughts, the vice president, aiming a little too low? The vice president, does he even have that power? Ex-CIA, just, just fill us in for a second. Yeah, you know, the uh, Powers Booths, uh, gosh, we keep referring to him as his real name. What, here, hold on a second. What's the character? Foss. Thank you. Joshua, Joshua Foss. Foss. So, you know, I guess Foss's background, uh, nebulous as it be, it's, it's never really fleshed out. But, uh, boy, I, I think the biggest takeaway for, for uh, Booth as an actor in this film is just the dialogue that he gets to chew on on this. I mean, it's classic mustache twirling villain speech after speech for two hours i mean it's it's uh it's a wonder to behold i mean it's uh it, it's pretty pretty remarkable what he's able to pull off here i'll send you a card and to his credit in the 90s 107 billion dollars uh now we're talking uh typically i was fully ready for it to be like i want 11 million dollars but no, he's a little bit of ahead of the times. He had a bit of an interesting bank plan, which I think is also a pull from Die Hard 2 as well. And now he's in control, which sets the stage for the first great set piece of this movie, the first time that Van Damme actually gets to put up the Dukes and go into the action. And as a former server, and I'm sure everyone else here has dined at a restaurant, not recently, but perhaps in their life, 
fantastic scene of the back room of a restaurant. And I'm kind of interested, you know, we've got, we've got different images here. We've got the chicken bone in the head. We've got someone almost getting tossed into the French fry fryer. But I'm just kind of asking you real quick, could they have done better? Do we have any nominations here for what we think our top maybe two or three kill options would have been at a restaurant? I think we're going to open the floor with Mara. Mara's ready to roll. Uh, well, what's funny is I, I actually have two, one of which I thought of right away and the other that I thought of much later as I kept thinking about this question. So the first one I thought of was a really good weapon would be the uh, plastic corn on the cob holders. Um, you know, they look like yellow corn and they stick in the end and they could be eye pokers. So you would go straight straight to the eyeballs, poked out with and then lift the them ears up. of corn. And then lift them up in the air. And then like a little mini rotisserie or something. And then the second one, which is kind of like, it's kind of more of a torture device, but my thought was a pasta maker, but like you have to slowly feed like a hand or the hair of someone through the pasta maker. And they're aware of their slow demise as you like squeeze their body parts through the vice, which is gruesome, but that made me laugh a little bit. Gruesome, but I love the imagination. Uh, I also thought of one of lettuce wrapped until they suffocate. Uh, Jay, I would love to hear you're in a scrap. You're in the back room of a restaurant. How are you going to take out these, these, these villains here? How are you taking out the bad guys? You know, I mean, I am a big uh, action movie fan. I, you know, to, to harken back to another classic of uh, Terminator 2, I really love that griddle. Um, I'm really surprised we didn't see any griddle action. I I'm also surprised that there is some direct foreshadowing at the beginning of the kitchen scene with a, uh, a flip of a, uh, of a cleaver. And I thought to myself, boy, we're going to see that cleaver again. And we never did. Uh, it's, it's clean. It's simple, effective. Uh, not not nearly dramatic enough. For That's a, a bummer. That's so a crumb that led nowhere. I also had uh, testicles on a griddle, so we are on the exact same path there. I thought someone's, you know, just testicles get pressed on there. Chris, you need that griddle. Yeah, exactly. Chris, uh, you're in a restaurant. You're in a scrap. Uh, how are you killing somebody? I would say just 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 go for the simple like pots and pans, a uh, Samwise Gamgee style. Just start hitting people in the head with pots and pans. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was thinking about, so is all the restaurant staff, are we to understand that they've all been killed? Is that why the kitchen's empty? People are killed very freely in this movie. Uh, bullets are flying. The chef because is just, he's got, he's got a brilliant mind, but he's kind of, he's got a bit of a weak spine. It doesn't really work out for them. You're going to have to go back and check the Zamboni to see how many kitchen That's staff. right. That's yeah, true. Because, because the head chef chops onions, which I was like, whoa, he's like trying to get like down on the level of like the, like the lower staff there. That, that confused me. And, and the, the oil was on and boiling and the grill was on. Everything was on, but there was no kitchen staff. I was Did like, they notice? must all been, I think they're all dead. It was weird. Did you notice that the uh, French fries were in the basket and they were still raw? They weren't like black floating French fry burns. They were like, someone just dropped those puppies in and they were like, we're out of here. So Chris, just as a uh, plot point of clarity here, uh, you'll recall that the directive from uh, Hallmark, the head uh, secret service agent, was that once dinner service was completed, that everybody was to leave the kitchen immediately. So that's why they're gone, but it doesn't explain why everything is still operational. Yeah, fitting it, fitting it in right there. Dan, I want to hear from you. You're in a restaurant. You're in the back room. All of a sudden, you're in a fight for your life. What are we going here? Are we going the corn dog batter? Are we going cotton candy? What are you going? Well, first off, uh, after hearing Mara's response, I just want to ask, how are things at home? Are you okay? <laughs> so far, so good. Uh, go pens, and oh. we're okay. Yeah. Okay, just blink uh, torture and Morse code if something's wrong. Um, I think that for me, what really stood out, uh, number one, I co-sign all the complaints from Jason and Chris, like a lot of setups that they didn't pay off on in, in the kitchen alone. Uh, but I think that because of the product placement, I would have liked to have seen a death by drowning in Coca-Cola. Mm, yes, absolutely. I mean, and my, my second is a, a favorite of asphyxiation from doing whippets off the professional cream whipping canister. 
Ah, uh, yes. When they when he gets a little MacGyver, Chris, do you want to hop back in? I did because the way that they edit that fight is so funny. Like it's edited like a like like um like a scene from the Naked Gun. Like it's the same thing. Like, I was laughing so hard. Like like they would cut and he's like he's gonna go in the grill and then cut he's gonna go on the oil. It was just like it was insane. It was such a good time. And then the musical score that just follows through as he slowly gets dragged into the dishwasher. The worst way to go. Hop in Mara and then Dan. She. I, she, yes. Um, I think that all of that's true. I agree with all of it. But I think the weirdest part of that scene was watching, you know, a childhood mascot be a, you know, a murderer and then only to find out that the original wearer of said costume was also murdered. Like, who does that? Who? What? Yes, the girl, the the girl who you meet at the beginning of the movie, the beautiful blonde girl. In you the didn't movie, find okay. her in the movie, absolutely in murdered. Life. Like, do, like what henchmen? You know, in movies where you you knock somebody out and then you wear their costume and then you like disguise yourself to get by to the next thing. Who actually murders that person? Like she didn't deserve to be, she didn't deserve that. And I'm bummed about it. It was really upsetting when I found, I thought maybe she'd be like stuffed in a closet, knocked out, but bullet in the head or whatever it was, was pretty extreme. <laughs> That's what we call a tease in the biz right now. We're going to get a quick break and then we're going to come right back with the sudden death of the Chicago sports podcast series. But today's episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. And look, there's no shortage of action going on with your exclusive partner, betonline.ag. Listen to me. I know sports are slowly coming back. Major League Baseball, NHL, and maybe basketball. They're on their way back, but UFC, boxing, NASCAR, and soccer, even golf, they're all leading the way right now, and betonline.ag has all the best odds and lines for the upcoming games and matches. Looking for something else other than sports? They've got you covered with hundreds of live casino games, poker tournaments, and all the best props in the business. So visit on your mobile device today, betonline.ag, and join right now. And they will even give you a welcome bonus for starting to play. Play today. Your online wagering experts, betonline.ag. Back to the pod. Let's catch everybody up real quick here. It's the end of the first period. It's 1-1. The Pens get on the board early with a quick little something-something in front of the net, but the Blackhawks come back with a rage and finish it out in the first period. It's tied at one. It's white-knuckle action going on in the ice, but in the background, there's a lot happening, and I kind of want to start it with this, and this is a broader topic to the Penguins' mascot. There are a lot of interesting moves that are plot-driven that kind of give Pittsburgh a little bit of a bad name here. Uh, the mascot turns into a serial killer. Uh, the security... A bit lax. Uh, coming up, there's a helicopter shot right in front of the stadium, and no one flips out about it. Everyone's all about hockey. I'm kind of interested. Hop in first here. I mean, is this a fair representation of Pittsburgh? No. Uh, that part was extremely uh, distracting to me, that people were – I mean, the crowd was – like, Mike Lang kept saying how loud the crowd was, but the crowd wasn't loud, like, in the mix of the, of the movie. And that was really weird. But – you're like the stadium opens up in overtime or not in overtime. No, yes. No, in overtime at the end, it opens. No one notices that. Um, no one hit. Yeah. That was super distracting. I thought, come on guys. No, you know, they do um, notice because they, they put off uh, fireworks. But that's, they, they open it after the first period to shut off fireworks in the I intermission. Thought it was like at the, at the half or between periods, either between one and two or two and three. Right. Yeah, and then and then it gets and then it closes and then it opens again in the uh, last scene during um, overtime. Uh, yeah, that was hugely distracting to me. And also, when people were fleeing for their lives, there was a child alone in the in the section, and nobody thought to ask or do anything. And I was like, Shh, that's Van Dam the firefighter. <laughs> Van Dam the firefighter would have done it. Dan, hop in. Uh, yeah, you know, I was also really disappointed with uh, the way they, they failed to capture the authentic Pittsburgh sporting event feel because, you know, there weren't any drunken fistfights in the parking lot. There weren't any drunken fistfights in the concourses, in the men's room. I mean, seriously, what are they doing? What do they expect us to believe here? Jay, by the end of the first period, can you remember what was going on? What were you eating? What were you doing? <laughs> so to clarify, 
I was actually, well, I guess I should uh, should say I was a, a paid extra on this film back in, uh, uh, gosh, November of 1994. No, mention it. Get your card. Get your card. Yeah, there it is. Uh, $32 paycheck on that one. Um, I was only there for the sudden death portion. Um, obviously shot over, you know, the, the, uh, the, the paid extra days where they needed the crowd were, were shot over, uh, uh over a, a series of about a week or so. And, and I was there for a night where they were shooting for the, uh, for the sudden death scene. So I wasn't quite there yet. Uh, there was actually no game occurring when I was there as well, but, uh, yeah, I was a, uh, uh I was a crowd member. Um, but I do have to say the, the disrespect of the, of the, the people of the city, I think began, real early with uh, those two security guards that get it in the beginning, just trying to be nice people. Then you lose uh, the uh, elderly uh, uh, wife of the, uh, of the cook, the cook himself. These people have a heart of gold and they just get, uh, get snuffed out with, uh, you know, not, not so much of a, of, a, of any, any sort of uh, farewell. So uh, it was, uh, it was bad from uh, bad from the start for the, for the people of the city. Yeah, really tough. Uh, I just thought it was represented very strange because all the bad things that seem to happen. I mean, you know, keep in mind the police that are flooding around the stadium right now. They can't figure out what's going on. I mean, these are these are Pittsburgh police policemen, right? And we have to leave it up to the firefighter right here. I kind of feel like it was a little bit of a little bit of a dig, and then all of a sudden Van Dam has to go all MacGyver on the situation, which I actually really enjoyed. But the question for me is, do you like your Van Dam MacGyver style? I mean, I, there's a, there isn't a single roundhouse in this movie. There isn't a kick in the nuts. We all were, we were trying to play a drinking game about whether he was going to do the splits or not. Didn't do the splits once. Not one split. Oh, we went to bed thirsty. What was the moment where we thought there was, oh, when he was playing goalie was a perfect time to do a split and he chose not to do a split. Why? It, was, it was all set up right there. And the biggest factor too, as well, in terms of the game itself, the X factor, Brian Tolliver, the goalie again, gets dragged in the mud here. The dude has a 104 fever, plays the game, and then I'm sorry, guys, like, bitches out about halfway through the second period. Is that, is that Pittsburgh's Penguins hockey? I, I, I'm not quite too sure here. I mean, this guy was just a full-on mess. 104 fever, That's you're bad. letting yeah, – we're talking Pittsburgh Penguins medical staff here. We're talking the coaching team here. Right? Like, I think that you guys are a fantastic organization. Just kind of got dragged under the mud here. Dan, hop in. Uh, yeah, and, and the funny part is the the idea came from the wife of the owner of the pens, and she's the one who's putting them in this light, which is kind of weird if you think about it, that she's probably in that stadium during that movie. Her and her husband are like on the other side, just like partying it up while the vice president is being held hostage. And if I may sidebar, I'm just wondering like what teams are in the NBA finals right now that the president is in some other stadium and Joshua Foss is not trying to get his money that way. I mean, I agree. That's a really good Jay point. hop in. Sure. And another thing too, I mean, you can see the way that they treat uh, the, uh, the mayor and his wife, the mayor of the city of Pittsburgh versus the way they treat uh, the, the vice president. The vice president was a stand-up person. He was uh, looking to stick up for, uh, uh, for Emily, the young girl and, you know, he just had a much, much better depiction than the, the sort of the sniveling, cowering, uh, afraid, uh, supposed to be the mayor of the city of Pittsburgh, obviously fictional in this film. But uh, yeah, odd choices all the way around. So at this point, the Hawks take the lead two to one. And I'm like, this movie is going to turn out great. But then the pens tie it at 2-2. Van Damme goes MacGyver. And now we're coming up to the point where Van Damme gets his big moment. He gets, I think three sentences in a row he gets a big speech and this is the big i'm coming for you speech we're going to do two scouting reports on van dam the first one is on that speech chris we're going to go first with you also very distracted by that speech because uh he was being really mean to the he 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 found out that there was bombs in that like in that conversation right is that when he found it out yeah he finds out the traitor just it actually right happens to be in the department again. Not good look for Pittsburgh, and he gets lit on fire. Yeah, this this kind of goes back to what, what what I was saying before, where where he just goes into like I'm gonna kill whoever I come in contact with, um, and I guess it's supposed to be like, well, he's trying, his he's he he's upset about his daughter, so that would like motivate him to become this person, but uh, 
really terrible line readings by uh, JCVD, man. Um, you soaked her. You soaked her. You soaked her. But you like, whenever, her. like, whenever he says, like, what does he say? Does he say, like, I'm going to get you to Powers Booth? Like, what's that last line? Is that uh, what he I, says? I, it's, I'm coming for you or I'm coming to get you. He, uh, he kind of taunts him a little bit by set off the bombs. Dan, hop in. He says, come and get me. Yes. Yeah. Come and get uh, me. He's so, like, and the fact that he's the marshal and, and he knows the stadium, the arena, rather, inside and out. He's able to go between these bombs at, like, faster than anything. It's amazing. Um, but the speech, I, the scouting report, I would say probably like a seventh, eighth round pick. Mara, scouting report on the Van Dam speech. Was, was it good? Did it thrill you? Um, no. It did not. No. It did not work. It did not thrill me. And also, to the point of him caring about his daughter so much, what about his son who's just alone in the stands? Or is he? Who still or doesn't believe in he? him and still doesn't trust him. Yeah, his son is a total douche. I mean, he's a shitty son, but like, also, like, your son is, and he's so patient during all the kookiness that's happening. The kid is just, like, twiddling thumbs up there as people are fleeing for their lives. His son is just sitting there like a real dum-dum. Dan, hop in. Well, this is where you know that the screenwriters have a sense of humor because they give Van Damme all this exposition about bombs around the stadium at structural points. Uh, it's the same thing that happens in later Terminator movies where they give all of this futuristic technobabble Arnold Schwarzenegger to try and explain quantum field theory and time travel and cybernetic organisms. I think it's just because they like to hear him, you know, try to struggle over it with his accent. And, you know, they do a good job of trying to explain, at least Van Damme, as far as action heroes go, uh, he's lucky that, that the, the, even the Belgian French accent kind of transposes onto Montreal, Louisiana, because they go to that a lot in, in his, uh, his uh, oeuvre. Uh, whereas yeah, he kind of needed a buddy who was like uh, a little bit brash and uh, had all this confidence in the world, but maybe he didn't actually have bravery and then didn't believe him and then eventually came through and had that confidence to become the hero. There's something that play off of him for a second. Like I get that he's alone and defusing bombs, but I mean, it's almost as if we got to make him a goalie at some point. Cause we got to give him something to do here. We can't just let him have sign language be the only way that his character is actually being being brought out through this throughout this whole thing mara the thing that really um makes me think is so he's the fire marshal of the civic arena it's a huge place you mean to tell me he has no team with him he's one man responsible for an entire arena that doesn't make sense he's that good he's that good which brings us into a perfect time to ask you guys what is the most realistic or realistic part of the movie now this can't necessarily be obvious it could be something a little bit smaller but jay we're gonna go to you first most unrealistic part of the movie unrealistic yeah what wins oh what wins the crown for unrealistic a lot to choose from it could be something small could be something boy big. it's just a a veritable smorgasbord of unrealism um i'll tell you what i'll give you my uh i'll give you my top uh top three uh, one is, uh, is, uh, entry to the stadium via, or to the arena via, uh, uh, ID card alone. Uh, it seems as though the, the person who lets them in knows every single person in line there, except for those two guys and lets them in basically sight unseen. Nobody's asking car. questions. Yeah. And that guy, he's a friendly guy. He knows everybody. He just lets them in. Uh, two is going to be, uh, death by... Uh, dishwasher. Um, I mean, it's it's pretty high concept, but uh, you know, and I mean, you gotta love it. I mean, it, it, this doesn't mean that I don't like it. It's just not terribly real. No, that's and, a, that's a tough beat. And and third, and I don't want to get too far ahead. You know, I mean, spoiler alert. But uh, you know, the the helicopter. Uh, I mean, just lining itself up perfectly to to have that perfect little pirouette and straight down in into the drink there. But uh, anyway, yeah, that's my top three. Dan, hop in. Well, prepare for your mind to be blown because according to the internet that I have not researched beyond the website I saw it on, apparently they actually lowered a helicopter into That's true. that opening. So uh, the other, I've got some realism and some unreality. The, uh, the, the realism is that 
I'm absolutely convinced that this version of Iceberg, the mascot, is the inspiration for Gritty. Because Gritty absolutely kidnaps and murders. And I'm getting thumbs down all around. Nobody's happy about that. But for some unreality, uh, I can't believe that Van Damme decided that his best way to hide in a locker room was to take the 25 minutes to put on goalie pads. Because I don't know if you've ever tried, but it is not a quick process. I mean, like, even just, just try putting on your shoes while somebody's trying to break into your house. And uh, tell me how that works out. Little did he know that he would be in the game. Chris, hop in. Um, any, well, the hockey stuff, I guess we're going to talk about a little later, like the actual, but that, uh, Dan, like that whole part with the goalie right before where he's like, I feel like shit. And he just comes out and he was playing cause he had a fever. Like that whole thing makes no sense. Tom. But I want to go back to, uh, the head chef chopping the onions. That that's not a thing. That's not that's a thing. A great one. That's, that's very true. That is not. That is not, that was not taught in the schools. Um, one of mine is the fact that I find it very unrealistic that the writers of this film didn't think and decide that it'd be cooler if Van Damme just shot a puck straight up in the air into the helicopter that brought them down. Honestly, shooting a gun just into the helicopter and it kills them, uh, not interesting, uh, not super personal. I thought they were really going to try and figure out some sort of way to kind of like rope them down or he was going to ride it in there and then maybe like, get a chance to do a slap shot on the ice or something. That's my unrealistic for the movie, Mara. Unrealistic? Um, I am in agreement with almost everybody about the goalie situation. There is, well, there's truly no possible way that Jean-Claude Van Damme could even fit into the goalie equipment in a way that would dupe the other team. I mean, the man is, he's, he's wee. I mean, I can't say that he's super small, but he's definitely smaller than a, professional NHL goalie, you know, which is, come on guys. And the second thing, which I'm surprised no one's brought up the bumbling of the, I guess the Pittsburgh police department. They're just like, they're really shrugging their shoulders outside, not knowing what to do ever. I can't believe it. I mean, yeah, when, well, a, when a helicopter explodes outside of true. a game seven yeah. stadium, typically you would either suspend the game or find some sort of yeah. way to uh, divert to something else. Yeah, that's the thing. It's always like the seventh thing and a string of super dangerous things that could happen to this crowd of people in there that they just choose not to inform them on. Or maybe that is a Pittsburgh thing. They do love sports a lot. Also unrealistic, Van Damme did not kick anyone in the nuts. We got just a couple more things left. We are going to get to the end and final thoughts. But first, I want to do a little hockey talk here. And Chris, maybe you can get us started here with just maybe your general thoughts on the hockey play in general. And back to my point from earlier, the Blackhawks took the pens to seven games in the 90s? What are we talking about here? So hopefully people will remember that uh, the Penguins swept the the Blackhawks in the 92 Stanley Cup final. Oh, I remember. Um, Yeah. yeah. And uh, Penguins fans will most remember uh, the goal by Yammer Yager in game one, where he dangled through the entire Chicago defense and scored a goal. Um, but in this case, I, I don't know much about the 95 Hawks, but I know the, the 95 Pens were really, really good. Um, it was one of the many years where they kind of like messed up and they didn't actually go as far as they could. Uh, seeing Luke Robitaille as a Penguin is really, really cool but also like such a weird moment in Penguins history because he was a Penguin for half a season in one playoff run. So, and he was the only guy in the movie that they could get. Like no Mario, no like Yager, no Ron Francis. Like Francis was mentioned and Kevin Stevens, but that's not really them. It's just their jersey apparently. And uh, Mara was saying it's like a minor league team in their jerseys. Um, Jeremy Roenick, I saw him. I saw his number there for, for a hot second too. Um, but yeah, uh, wait, what was your uh, original question for? Well, I was just asking about what you thought of the, the hockey play oh, in general, because right. they do kind of cut, they definitely cut a few corners on the players that are out there on the ice. But I mean, honestly, it's all close action goal scoring. There's no slap yes. shots. There's no wristers. There's no one-timers. There's nothing. Right. Um, I was really impressed with the hockey in this movie. I was thinking like, is this the best hockey in a movie I've ever seen? And it's probably because they just filmed a game, right? They just filmed some guys playing. Like, they didn't have to do, like, filming uh, for, like, the plot until Van Damme got on the ice. 
So it just seems like they just filmed a game kind of and told them what to do. But but it really looks good. Um, I thought it looked really good. Uh, Mara, hop in. You got a little trivia about the director and his experience and exposure to hockey before shooting this movie. I need to pull up the exact quote, and you might have to give me just a moment to do that. But the director, I'm going to paraphrase, he literally never saw a game, never been to a game, didn't know anything about hockey. And in the article, he's like, hockey is a fast sport with the pucks flying. You wouldn't believe how exciting it is in person. And I'm like, they got this guy to direct, like never been to a game before in his life. But something needs to be said because the, uh, the hockey coordinator, and forgive me, I'm also, I'm not going to remember the next movie that they worked on, but they did such a good job with this movie, Chris, to your point, that they were brought on to another hockey movie later on in the uh, early 2000s to coordinate their scenes. So they must have done a good job. So the 94-95 season cut short by a lockout. 48 games were played. The Blackhawks were 24-19-5. Okay, whatever. The Pens were 29-16-3. And, and Jay, you would actually enjoy this. If they had actually used the players on those particular teams at the time, the Blackhawks had three Hall of Famers on the team, not including Ronick, who will become a Hall of Famer one day. And the Pens had four Hall of Famers, and that's not including Yamir Yager. So in theory, Jay, you could have seen nine Hall of Famers on the ice at one time. Well, you saw a bunch of Stooges from some Cleveland team in their jerseys, though, at least. Um, that's nice. And, and you know, Mara, just to, to, uh, to back it up, the, uh, the uh, coordinator went on to do She's Out of My League. Thank you. Which you recall is the, uh, the hybrid hockey slash figure skating film thank you for the fact classic film and some quick reactions chris i want from you uh, a couple of stats that i pulled up here uh tony amani is mentioned in the movie in 48 games had 15 goals 20 assists chelios is in the movie five goals 33 assists listen to the numbers from yamir yager that season in 48 games he had 32 goals and 38 assists i mean we're i mean that's on pace for something we don't even talk about anymore in hockey yeah, exactly. I mean, that was a different era, but I mean, he was he was so dominant for so long, and and they should have won more championships, but they they didn't. Happen, Mar. And apparently, uh, Yamir Yager was uh, super pissed that three goals were were scored in the movie while the player wearing his jersey was on the ice and was doing nothing about it. So, <laughs> and he was quoted to be pissed about it. That hurts to the bone. So we're going to come up to our final segment. It's going to kind of be all encompassing right now. I want to hear about your thoughts on the movie. I want to hear about the final scene specifically. And then I also want to hear, it was 4-4 in overtime. Sudden death. Who would have won that game? Dan Martin, we're going to go to you first. Uh, so number one, I'm, I'm very glad that we got to see some classic Powers Booth looks by the end of the movie because he's got the mu the fake mustache and the Chuck Noll hair going. Uh, you it's know. like a Chuck Noll meets Terry Bradshaw situation. It's very Yinzer, but also very uh, imposing at the same time. Yeah, also I think it's an underrated element. I don't think enough of these die-hard on a blank movies have silly Scooby-Doo style disguises involved. Like, like, where was Hans Gruber running around Nakatomi Tower in a big cowboy hat? I think that's something that the movie really was missing. Um, but he never got his hand stamped. Uh, in the end, I got to go with the original six. I'm pretty sure the Blackhawks pulled it out. Uh, and I'm going to give my score. I think I give it a 10 out of 10 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, interesting. Do, do the math there. Mara, we're going to go to you. Uh, your general thoughts on the movie that you watched for the first time a week ago. The final scene, the helicopter with the igloo open and... Who would have won the game, the Pens or the Blackhawks? Uh, well, the Pens would have won the game, no contest. Obviously, I'm from Pittsburgh. There's just, just no chance. The Hawks aren't that good. Um, what did I think about the movie? For a first watch, you know, I've known about the movie. Obviously, Jason is my brother, and he was an extra in the movie, and it was always kind of like, I remember being younger and him going to do that. And we, I remember, I don't know if I can speak for Chris on this. He might have been a little too young, but I remember thinking, my brother's going to be in a movie. Like how cool. Like I remember feeling so excited that he was going to do that and how like, and I would, th I do remember being like upset. I wasn't asked to go. Like I do remember being bummed about it. Overall, the movie was fine. It was hilarious. I think a, lo a lot of unnecessary murder, so much unnecessary murder that I was 
taken aback, if you will, like to the point where like when there is a hostage situation, it's very rare in a movie that you actually see the person holding the hostages literally kill the people he says he's going to kill. Usually he, he uses some sort of leverage, but in this case, no leverage, just shot them dead without regard. Um, and as far as the final uh, scene with the helicopter, I mean, unrealistic at best, but fun fact, guys, um, this is a Pittsburgh fact. The Civic Arena built in 1961, first of its kind to have a retractable roof in the world, which is kind of a feather in Pittsburgh's cap and all built with 3,000 tons of Pittsburgh steel. There you go, guys. That sounds like a four out of Fahrenheit tens uh, there. We, uh, we're going to go to Chris right now. Uh, final thoughts on the movie, final scene, and did the Pens and Blackhawks win? I actually really want to talk about the last sequence in the game. That's okay. Because the Luke, the Luke Robotai sequence? or so, Okay, so the... that, is, that, that would be the greatest goal of all time. If a breakaway shorthanded, you tuck it under the goalie with no time left. Insane. But I want to talk about, I was obsessed with, because the game was actually really good. I was, I was more interested in the game than the, movie, than the plot of the movie. Because the game was so thrilling. And the way it was you know, happening and stuff. And Mike Lang, I mean, he knows how to call a game. But uh, from the fans' point of view, to see your goalie down by one goal, make an incredible save. Then on the next face-off, he sucker punches a guy. It's a game misconduct and puts the other team on the power play, and they're down by a goal with less than two minutes left in a game seven of the Stanley Cup final. I was like, what in the world? And, like, the coach didn't seem to be upset at all about that. And then they win. They tie the game on a shorthanded goal. That's insane. Like, that whole stuff was like, this is maddening. Maybe that's the most unrealistic thing. But I was just like, could you imagine if your goalie just, like, you're down by a goal and he just, like, clobbers a guy and you're shorthanded, done by one. It's insane. So you're saying in this scenario, the Penguins goalie, whoever it is probably in overtime, ends up scoring the game-winning goal because we're, we're, we're at heights now that cannot be reached or surpassed. It's wild. I, I, was, I was like losing my mind. Thinking about it in terms of a real game, I was losing my mind. Uh, Jay, I want to be respectful to you um, because this isn't a movie. This was your life. Uh, this happened to you. You survived this bomb threat. The vice president got out there alive. You got out of there alive. Uh, final thoughts on this, that harrowing experience, the trauma, uh, maybe the nachos that you ate, and uh, did the Pens and Blackhawks win? Who won? Boy, it's, uh, I'm, I'm a survivor. I, I got to tell you, I haven't, uh, haven't seen the film in, God, probably a good maybe more than 15 years it's prior tough. to seeing it's it less very tough hey, you know what i i actually enjoyed it i mean it's 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 uh you know it's not a great film i mean i don't want to i don't want to dissuade anybody listening to this to to not watch it but uh you know it's it's fun to see um uh an unpopular opinion around these parts uh i don't necessarily know that the penguins win this game had there not been a cataclysmic event uh during sudden death in this film uh, the uh, shorthanded goal by Robitaille aside, I think that the Hawks had the uh, big Mo going into that with two unanswered points prior. So I don't know. I mean, it's tough to say. Um, but to speak a little bit about uh, about what went down whenever I was there, you know, the uh, the capacity of the old Civic Arena of uh, I think it was somewhere around seventeen thousand. But uh, during the nights that they were doing uh, crowds, they probably had maybe five hundred people. So they would move us to different parts to be in the background. Uh, the big uh, momentous scene that they had us shoot while we were there was when uh, people finally see uh, Van Damme's character uh, swinging from the uh, from the light in the ceiling, which is uh, you know somehow rigged up as a, as a zip line in the film, uh, into the uh, uh, to the, the president's box, and everybody stands up and points and then runs away. That was what uh, what i was tasked with and uh last night whenever i watched it i paused it at a number of number of spots hoping that maybe i would see myself and uh, i don't think i made the cut unfortunately um but here's something fun when you go back and watch it there are a couple things with regard to the crowd that you will recognize first the upper decks of the of the arena are never full at all you can see the bare red seats the entire game one 
two, everywhere that they didn't have a live crowd, and this is most noticeable in the shots of uh, Staggy and Mike Lang in the press box, there's kind of an over-the-shoulder shot where you're seeing down into the arena and they're giving their play-by-play. There's probably 15,000 cardboard cutouts of the people with photos on the front of them, and you can see them if you're looking for them. Uh, You know, if you kind of, you know, I remember sitting there, you know, 15 years old and thinking to myself, oh, you know, they're going to use movie magic to make this, this look right. And it, it didn't it didn't really work out. Maybe Movie it's because I know they in, were there. But yeah. As in taken from Home Alone, uh, just use cord, cardboard cutouts. And- <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, they were just pe- just just photos of people uh, propped up on the seats. Um, and uh, yeah, and Michael know, Jordan. Was, yeah, there was somebody that I knew that uh, that ended up with one of those uh, at home. But uh, but oh, yeah, I thought you were yeah, gonna you say you knew someone that. that was a cardboard cutout, and then I was gonna oh, be concerned, and then everything, and then but, <laughs> now, that would have been great. Uh, but yeah, it was neat. You know, it, it, they had the uh, the ceiling open because the ceiling was open during that scene, um, which was uh, challenging because, you know, I mean, this was, you know, uh, Stanley Cup. This probably should have been taking place May or June. So they told us to dress, uh, you know, as though it was, you know, early summer or late spring. Uh, but it was being shot in November, cold night with the roof open. Um, it was neat to be in there with the roof open, though. I don't know anybody else that was ever in there whenever they opened it up. And it happened a lot faster than you would think. It just sort of opened up like a like a remote, you know, sort of a, like, like the window in your car, you know. Pretty crazy. Get up, get up and move along, Van Damme. Stay under budget. Yeah, for me, this movie, I went and saw it in the theater strictly because on the poster, the Blackhawks and Penguins were on the exact same poster. I was like, I have to go see this movie. Uh, on rewatch, it's... It, it works pretty well. I think it moves at a pretty decent clip. I thought the editing in the first half hour, 40 minutes is pretty much representative of a lot of the movies that it was trying to copy. Now, is this movie better than Cliffhanger? No. Under Siege? No. Passenger 57? No. Die Hard? No. On and on and on. But still a pretty decent 90s movie. And if it wasn't for Powers Booth, I don't think we would be even talking about this movie at all. Um, not even the best Van Damme movie. He doesn't kick one guy in the nuts. Now that's unrealistic. Uh, we're going to do 10 seconds with everyone else. Then we're going to say goodbye. Just final thoughts. Fit anything else in that you can. This is the overtime session. Dan, go first. Oh God, it's sudden death and I have nothing on tap. Um, I just say that, you know what? Uh, you can laugh at it. You can joke about it, but you can't deny that you enjoyed it. Mara, final thoughts. I agree. I'm, I'm the Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh themed movie. <laughs> I agree with Dan, um, full throttle. Um, I think the only upsetting thing to me as a Pittsburgher is that there are very few movies which really proudly display that they are in Pittsburgh. Like the movie is set in Pittsburgh. They call it Pittsburgh. I mean, we have Batman movies and all that jazz, but that's Gotham City. Um, So for a movie to be set proudly in Pittsburgh and to be so, I mean cinematically bad um though funny and enjoyable just it's a bit of a bummer to me as as someone from the city jay final word on the film sudden death i mean it's uh i mean this is this is your poor man's die hard die hard on ice man um you gotta watch it i mean it's it's part of the part part of our our cinematic universe uh it's it's not going away and and uh you know john claude van damme is a is a legend in the uh in the genre Fast food diehard. Chris, final thoughts from a hockey head. Um, I also agree that the movie's worth watching. Um, it's it's a real damn shame that they couldn't utilize Van Damme's value more than they did. It is it is a shame. It really is. Powers Booth is excellent. They give him all the good lines. He's he's really that man knows how to entertain. And I was happy with him, with his performance. I enjoyed it. And his character was great. It really was. So I think it's worth watching. funny this was the 1995 film sudden death on the chicago sports movie podcast series we got plenty more movies coming up but thank you so much for listening today thank you for coming on the podcast mara carosi christopoulos dan martin chris carosi and jason chioto this was believe in betting chicago my name is joey christopoulos thank you so much for listening be kind be good be nice to each other thank you so much talk to you soon
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.